0: The children of Israel are moving now through the wilderness. And they took their journey from Elam. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. So they have been actually journeying now for... um, about 45 days. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Now, this is really a very uh, unfortunate accusation. It's an untrue accusation. But uh, people can sometimes be so cruel. And now they're hungry. And when people are hungry, sometimes they'll say, you know, when a man gets hungry, sometimes they become like a bear. You just want to feed them before you talk to them, really. And uh, these people were hungry. And so they said it would have been better off for us to have died back in Egypt by those flesh pots with a full stomach, full of bread, than out here in this wilderness to starve to death. Why did we ever listen to you guys? And they, you know, it, they, they so quickly forgot the misery and the bondage, the cruel bondage of Egypt it is oftentimes like this when a person after coming out of of the bondage of of sin and out of his experiences in the world many times as we look back at them they seem to be now more glamorous than they were when we were in them we forget the emptiness we forget the 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 cruel bondage that we experienced we forget what it was as far as the pain and the, and the hurt and the suffering. And all we remember is the full stomach. And so as they are remembering their experience in Egypt, all they're remembering was the, the plus side of it, the, the full stomach as we sat by the flesh pots. And and they were saying, hey, we would be better off if we were back there And, and we died there by the plague of God, by the plagues that God were bringing. The Lord had slain us with the Egyptians. We'd have been better off than being here and dying of hunger. Then said the Lord to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God says, all right, I'll give them bread from heaven, but we'll prove to see if they're going to walk in my law or not. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Moses and Aaron said it to the children of Israel that evening, Then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, then shall ye see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. What are we that ye murmur against us? Now, they were murmuring to Moses and Aaron. But Moses and Aaron said, Hey man, you're not really murmuring against us. You're murmuring against God. It's God that has brought you to this place, not we. And your murmurings are against God. I think that this is something that we need to take into account when we're prone to complain about our lot in life. Who is it that has brought me here? Any complaining that I do is in reality complaining against God. For God is the one who has brought me to these circumstances. God is the one who has placed me here. Unless I've been disobedient to Him. But my complaints are really against the Lord. And that's, that's a very serious thing. To be complaining against God so Moses says, I refuse to accept your complaints. You're not murmuring against me. You're murmuring against the Lord. And Moses said, this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the full for that the Lord hears your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So he's emphasizing that point to them. Your murmuring about your situation is actually, when you get down to the the bottom line, you're murmuring against God. So Moses spake unto Aaron, saying to the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And so it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now, this must have been quite an awesome sight. The cloud had been leading them. And suddenly, in this cloud, the glory of the Lord appeared. Now, it doesn't declare how and in what manner the glory of the Lord appeared. But it was no doubt an awesome kind of a display or demonstration where God just demonstrated His glory. There in the cloud. Now one of these days very soon, God's going to demonstrate His glory in the clouds again. As Jesus comes with clouds and great glory. Demonstrating His glory in the clouds. But there God demonstrated His glory unto the children of Israel. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speak unto them, saying... At evening ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that evening that quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host, and that would be the host of Israel. And when the dew that lay was gone up, Behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna, for they knew not what it was. Manna actually means, what is it? So they saw this little round seed-like thing on the ground, and they said, What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, and omer, and we don't know how much that was, for every man, according to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they did measure it out with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And Moses said, let no man leave of it until the morning. In other words, eat it all up. Don't leave any overnight. Don't try to keep it overnight. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left it until the morning And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Uh, People just don't listen. And uh, Moses uh, said, now look, don't leave any over till the morning. Just, you know, get rid of it. Whatever's left at night, get rid of it. And some of them tried to save some so they wouldn't have to go out early in the morning and gather it. And got wormy and stunk. And so Moses... Naturally, God said, hey, I'll prove them to see if they'll hearken to my commandments. They're failing the test miserably. They gathered it every morning, and every man according to his eating. When the sun was waxed hot, it melted. And it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, this is that which the Lord has said, tomorrow is the rest. Of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today. And see that which you will see. And that which remain over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And so uh, on the sixth day they could keep it overnight. And it wouldn't breed worms and stink, uh, Because the next day was to be the Sabbath. Now it is interesting that here the Sabbath was established. And practiced before the law was given. So already the idea of six and one, six days of labor, a day of rest had been established in their national life. And this is before God established the law with Israel in which he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, and we'll get into that when we get into the 20th chapter. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Sabbath day. Now they, they would bake this they would, they would grind it like uh, a, a grain into a flour and they would bake it into bread or they would boil it uh, sometimes and eat it like a cereal and I would imagine just like in uh, Central America where they've learned to make so many different dishes with the rice that these inventive women no doubt learn to spice this stuff up different ways and and make a lot of interesting uh, kind of dishes out of this uh, manna, uh, this little seed kind of a thing that God uh, put on the ground for them every morning. And they laid up till the morning, and as Moses had commanded, and they did not stink, neither was there any worms in it. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. For six days ye shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day to gather it, and they found none. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide every man of his place on the Sabbath or on the seventh day. Now Actually, the Sabbath day was a day of rest and really God is saying here let every man just stay in his bed. Now we, you know, somehow got the concept well, you know, the, the day that is holy unto the Lord is the day we all go to church and we gather and worship God in the church. In reality, the Sabbath day wasn't so much a worship day as it was a rest day. It was a day for just total rest and relaxation, just a change of pace, giving the body a chance to more or less recover. Now the Lord said, Six days shalt thou labor and do thy work. The seventh day is a day of rest. God said, I have given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. God made it for man. To give the body a chance to just sort of recuperate. And the idea was just stay in bed, rest, do nothing. It wasn't really get up and go to Sabbath school or, or go to synagogue or whatever. It was just stay in bed and rest on the Sabbath day. I don't know but what that wouldn't be a good idea. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like a coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers that were made with honey, so little honey biscuit kind of things. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded, fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of the manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And so this pot of manna was preserved so that in years to come, the people could see the manna, the food that God provided in the wilderness for their fathers. And when uh, the tabernacle was built, the mercy seat, this pot of manna was inside of this little box, the mercy seat, along with Aaron's rod that budded. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna for 40 years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came to the borders of Canaan. Now an Omer is the tenth part of an Ephaph. And whatever that is, we don't know. But that's what it is. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. And they pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said... Give us water to drink. Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Now, their murmuring and their complaining was really uh, classified by Moses as a tempting of God. We are warned in the New Testament concerning the failure of the children of Israel because they were guilty of tempting God and proving Him. murmuring against him. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? Moses cried unto the Lord saying, What am I going to do with these people? They're ready to kill me. Poor Moses, I tell you. The position of leadership is not an easy position. And and Moses didn't have an easy task at all. And here the people now ready to stone him. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod where you smote the river, take it in your hand and go. And behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb And thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means temptation, and Mirabah, because of the chiding or the uh, striving of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so first of all, it was their hunger. Now, God has promised to provide all of our needs according to His riches in glory. And having led them out, God would have provided and taken care of them. Their first complaint was that of of their hunger. The second was that of water. These are two necessities food and drink especially in a wilderness area so I think that it is important to notice that though Moses was really upset with the people there is no indication that God was upset with them for their needs were natural needs now the way they were going about the accusations that they were making were extreme and wrong and yet the need was a natural need. God recognized that. And, and God does not show any displeasure with the people uh, so much as he does show with, uh, or, uh, as, as Moses actually uh, shows to the people. Uh, but God now tells Moses, take the rod and strike the rock and water will come forth. Now in the New Testament, we are told that these things are all figures. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's mythology, it's actual history, but they all have a spiritual counterpart. And we are told by Paul that that rock was Christ. Now you remember Jesus on the last day, the great day of the feast, cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. This was the feast Of tabernacles in which they were celebrating how God preserved their fathers through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and a part of the preservation was the providing of the water out of the rock so during the feast of tabernacles the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with these large water jugs and they would fill them with water And they would come back up the steps where several hundred thousand Jews would be gathered in the great Temple Mount area. And in front of all of the people as they were singing the Hallel Psalms, the priest would pour the water out on the pavement there of the Temple Mount. And that was to remind them how that God gave water to their fathers out of the rock in the wilderness. This was just sort of weaved into to the celebration of, of tabernacles. The booths, the, where they had to make their little booths. Again, to remind them how their fathers lived out in the wilderness for 40 years. And so this pouring out of water ceremony was a reminder of the water out of the rock. This experience. Now Jesus, even as He took the Passover and applied it to Himself personally... And said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Now here at the feast of tabernacles, on the last day, the great day of the feast, they would not go down and and get the water. They didn't pour out. They do it for the seven days of the feast. The eighth day, the great day, they wouldn't do it. Which was symbolic of the fact that we are now in the land that God promised to our fathers. We don't need the miraculous water out of the rock. And on that day, as the people were gathered, the great assembly of people there on the temple mount, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he who drinks of the water that I give out of his innermost being, there will flow rivers of living water. So Paul tells us that Jesus is the rock. He is the rock from which the living waters flow. Uh, in that land where water was such a premium, uh, and thirst is almost constant, the, 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 the idea of Christ as the water of life is, is probably much more significant than it is to us here where you just go turn a spigot on and get a drink whenever you're thirsty. Uh, There, you really had to think about water. You had to to be constantly thinking about water. Wherever you go, you'd have to think about, well, where will I get my water? Your water supply was an important thing. And so Jesus, the fountain of living waters, and so the final uh, invitation of revelation is Him that is a thirst. Let Him come and drink of the water of life freely. Partake of Christ. So Christ is the rock the fulfillment of this Feast of the Tabernacle, the rock from which the water flows, the water of life by which we might have life. Now, this is why when later on the people came to Moses again and they were thirsty, And Moses went in before the Lord and said, God, I can't stand it. These people are complaining again. And God said, that's all right. Moses, go out and speak to the rock. And water will come forth. And Moses went out and he was angry with the people. And he said, must I smite this rock again and give you water? And he smote the rock with his rod. And water came forth. But God called Moses in and said, Moses, that was a bad mistake. I told you to speak to the rock. And you disobeyed me. You misrepresented me before those people. And because of that, Moses, you can't go into the promised land. Oh, God, please, I'm sorry. Please let me go. in. Don't talk to me anymore about it, Moses. It's the way it's got to be. Why? Because now the symbolism is broken. You see, the rock was smitten. And from the smitten rock comes life. From Jesus being smitten, there comes forth life to you. But once the rock has been smitten, it never needs to be smitten again. He died once and for all. So that we need not to smite the rock to get the water. All we need to do is by faith ask. Speak to the rock and water will come forth. So we are not in the position of smiting the rock. That has already happened. Christ was smitten and the water of life came forth. Now all that is necessary is just speak, ask. And ye shall receive the water of life freely. And so the whole scene here uh, as God was setting the thing up. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now Amalek was the grandson of Esau who was of the fleshly seed. And represents the flesh. So in scripture, Amalek is always a type of the flesh. The flesh life, The fleshly seed. There is a spiritual seed. There is a fleshly seed. There is a spiritual side of my nature. There is a fleshly side of my nature. And the spirit and the flesh are in conflict. A constant warfare. My spirit lusting against my flesh, my flesh against the spirit, these two are contrary. And every child of God knows what it is to have a conflict with his flesh. Now, Amalek is a type of the flesh. And here, God's people, the spiritual seed, is coming in to take the land. But the flesh is the first thing that moves in the way to stop them and to hinder them from going in and taking and possessing that which God has promised to give to them. One of the biggest barriers to our receiving the full promises of God for our lives is our flesh. The flesh is always warring against the spirit. And our flesh would keep us from entering into the fullness of God's promises. And into the fullness of God's blessings. Amalek came out to meet them. The picture of the flesh. And fought with them. And Moses said unto Joshua. Choose us out men. And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him, and he fought with the Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on the stone and Aaron and Hur held up his hands the one on the one side the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua of course is the name Jesus in Greek which means Jehovah is salvation. And so... God's salvation, Joshua was, was sent to fight against them, was put over the, uh, the servants of God and fought against Amalek, the picture of the flesh, and they prevailed. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. So Moses was already writing the events that were transpiring. And and later on was to write and to compile these first five books of the Old Testament. And so uh, the compiling of the book, no doubt, was already in progress at this time. God told him to write this in the book as a memorial and to rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now, have you met an Amalek? Lately? Amalekite? No, God's wiped him out. He said he would. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. The Lord has become our banner. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord has sworn that you're going to have a battle with your flesh from generation to generation, and so it is true. You remember later on in the history, God gave a command that is difficult for many people to understand, and, and because of this, many of the critics have faulted the Bible and faulted God. At the time when Saul was king of Israel, God ordered Saul through Samuel to go down and to utterly slay the Amaleks. Remember that? Utterly slay them. Don't even leave an animal alive. Slay all the men, women, and children, and every animal. Wipe them out completely. And as I say, people have great difficulty in understanding this particular command of God. But when we realize that Amalek represents the flesh, what God is saying is that you can't make any truths with your flesh. God has no remedy for your flesh. God's only answer for your flesh is Crucifixion. Put it to death. You by the Spirit mortify the deeds of your flesh. God didn't want him to make any truce. God didn't want him to leave anything of the flesh. Utterly destroy it. Wipe it out completely. That was the command of God. Unto Saul. Now Saul failed. To obey God. And God was angry with Saul. And God said, because you have rejected God from ruling over you, you've refused to obey God. Thus God has rejected you from being king over Israel. And it was as the result of this that Saul was dethroned. Rejected by God. His failure of complete obedience in totally wiping out the flesh. Amalek. Now, later on in the Jewish history, we come across another man who was of the tribe or of the people of Amalek. Because Saul failed to wipe them out completely, Amalek came close to wiping out the children of God. It was the time when Esther was queen. And her uncle Mordecai refused to bow to this wicked Haman and so Haman was so angered by this man's refusal to bow to him that he went to the king to sign a decree that on a particular day every Jew in all the kingdom should be destroyed. You remember the story of Haman? Haman was an Amalek. He was of Amalek. Because Saul failed to totally destroy the flesh, the flesh came back and almost destroyed the people of God. For the king signed the decree, and the day was appointed when all of the people from Israel were to be slain, and all of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So Amalek, whenever you read of it in the scripture, is always a type of the flesh, the flesh life. As I say, God doesn't have any reformation programs, which we're always trying to reform our flesh. God has no reformation programs. He has only one edict for the flesh. That's crucify it. I am crucified with Christ. That's God's only solution for your flesh. You try to pamper it. You try to nurture it. You try to keep alive the best part of it. You say, oh, well, you know, I just keep the best part of my flesh for God. (laughs) Like Saul, you know, Lord, I saved the best for you. I want to make a sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice and hearken is better than the fat of ram. So make no covenant with him. God said there's going to be warfare with Amalek from generation to generation. Now when Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses and father-in-law, but the same Hebrew word could be translated brother-in-law, for we remember earlier he was called Ruel, the father-in-law of Moses was called Ruel. And so, it could be that this is Jethro, another name for Ruel, or it could be that Jethro is actually Moses' wife's brother. But he was a priest of Midian. And as I say, the word father-in-law could also be translated brother-in-law from the Hebrew. He heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, And that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. Now you remember when Moses was coming out with his wife Zipporah, uh, when God first called Moses to go deliver the children of Israel, and and Moses was heading down towards Egypt, and and the Lord met Moses and and almost killed him. And... uh, so uh, Zipporah knew what was going on She quickly circumcised their boy And uh, she uh, actually accused Moses of being a bloody man and so forth Evidently at that point they, they, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant scene I mean it was, it was quite a tiff between them And evidently Moses just sent her back to her dad You go back to your dad I'm heading on down to do my work in Egypt and and so Zipporah, his wife, uh, didn't accompany him, nor his two sons, uh, Gershom and Eliezer. Uh, but uh, now, uh, as he has come back into the area of Midian, uh, Jethro comes out and brings his wife and his two sons, Zipporah, Moses' wife. And the two sons, which the name of one was Gershon and the other was uh, uh Eliezer, Gershon meaning a stranger. And Eliezer uh, is the, uh, God is my help. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where they encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I, thy father-in-law Jethro, am come unto thee, and thy wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law And he bowed to him and kissed him and they asked each other how everything was going and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the travail that had come upon them by the way and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all of the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said blessed be the lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the egyptians and out of the hand of pharaoh who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the egyptians now i know that jehovah is greater than all gods for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly he was above them that is where the egyptians were so proud god was greater than they were and their gods and jethro Uh, And uh, God is greater. Remember, God said that He he was bringing the attacks against the gods of Egypt. So Jehovah is greater than all the gods, that is, the gods of Egypt. Uh, And Jethro Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And it came to pass on the next day, that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning till evening. So now Jethro built a altar, and he offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering to God. Now he was a priest, but he wasn't of the children of Israel. And so other people knew God and worshipped God, who were not the children of Israel in those days, Jethro being one of them. And he was a priest of God. Now the next day the people came into Moses with their problems, and from morning to evening they brought their cases to Moses for him to determine and for him to decide. That guy borrowed my shovel and he didn't bring it back, you know, or he broke the handle. And so Moses would have to say, okay, you get him a new handle, or fix the handle, or you know, and all day long Moses was was uh, interfacing for these people, giving judgment to them and so forth. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this that you do to the people? Why do you sit alone? From And all the people stand by thee from morning till evening. And Moses said unto his father, Imagine there were 600,000 adults, males. And, and so they were a big crowd. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a matter, they come to me and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, That's not good. You're going you're to wear yourself out, Moses, both you and the people that are with you. For this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God will be with you. Be thou for the people to Godward, that you may bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover thou shalt provide out of the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And place over them Such to be the rulers over the thousands Over the hundreds and over the tens So he is saying, hey Moses Hey, you're going to kill yourself, man You know, trying to keep up that heavy schedule You can't do it And so it isn't right That you just wear yourself out Doing this So you need to get other men to help you with this Now you teach the people the ordinances and statutes of God But Pick out men over the thousands and over the hundreds and over the tens and let them bring their cases to these men. Let them do the judgment. You teach them what the judgments and statutes of God are and let them handle these matters. And then in the areas where they can't handle them, Moses more or less became the Supreme Court so that every case wasn't brought to Moses but just those that could not be handled by those men under him. Quite often, uh, when you have a person of, of Moses' caliber in strong leadership, that uh, he becomes overburdened with things that actually don't always pertain to just the leadership. It's possible for you to find yourself uh, so engaged in uh, little non-essential things that you really don't have time to do the essentials. Now life has to be made up of priorities. We must determine what is most important. And then we've got to do the most important things. It's easy to find yourself majoring in the minors and spending so much time in minor issues of, of no count. That you really don't have the energy and the strength for the major things. I believe that Satan likes to wear people out on piddling little things. Sometimes I get involved in a project and and I enjoy doing mechanical things. I enjoy working on mechanical things but I have found there is a I think they call it Murphy's Law if anything can go wrong it will and sometimes you know you're just tightening a bolt and you think well I'll give it just a little bit more you know I want to make it good and snug and you snap the thing you know you can waste all kinds of time trying to get a stud out that you've snapped off in a block. And you find yourself working for an hour and a half just because you wanted to give it an extra little tug and cinch it down. And I think of all that wasted time just for the sake of a cinch down. Oh, out, you know, and, and and you find yourself sometimes involved in things and thus you've got to lay out your time, your priorities and what is really and truly important and, and, and lay out your, your priorities so that you're not spending all of your time in in in, the, in issues where someone else could just as easily handle them. Now this came up in the early church. Uh, they began to lay upon the apostles all of the decision-making processes. And the church had a welfare program and they were distributing to the widows in the church. And those widows that had a Grecian cultural background felt that the widows who had a Jewish cultural background were getting a better deal. They were getting... Um, favoritism when they were doling out the church's welfare program. So they came to the apostles and said, that's not fair. We of the Grecians aren't getting the same deal as the Hebrews. And they wanted the apostles to to move in and to do something. They said, hey, let's appoint men who are full of the Holy Ghost, of good report and wisdom and so forth, that they might take care of the waiting on of tables because it isn't right for us to leave the word of God in prayer to wait on tables. But I think of how many ministers have been forced to leave the word of God in prayer in order to wait on tables. Demands are being made upon the ministers that really a minister shouldn't have to fulfill. As a young minister in a small church, you'd be amazed the things that people ask you to do. Can you come over and pick me up and take me to the store? You become a taxi cab. And and you, you find yourself a handyman. And you find yourself doing all kinds of things that really don't pertain to the true ministry of the Word of God and prayer. In fact, I oftentimes found myself so involved in doing these other things that I didn't have time for the Word of God and prayer, and thus the people suffered. Now with a church this large, you can imagine the demands that are made upon our time. How many times people call and say, well, they'll only speak to Chuck. They don't want to speak to anybody else. They've been watching him on TV, you know, and if he'll come and talk to them, I know they'll get saved. Well, here's a guy that, you know, that's dying and he needs to have the Lord. And, and, you know, you get hundreds of these calls. And and if we tried to go around and to minister to everyone who called for us, we would never have time for the Word of God and prayer. We don't have enough time for it now. So you've got to establish priorities. You've got to do just what is truly the most important thing that God has called you to do. Now God has called Men to various ministries within the body. And God has anointed some men for the ministries of counseling and has anointed others for the ministry of helps and has anointed others for the ministry of governments. And it's a blessed church that has the various ministries functioning within the church so that all of the demands aren't placed upon one person to do everything. And, and this uh, Moses followed said, hey man, you're going to kill yourself. Not even taking time out to rest. All day long these people are standing here. You don't have time to really wait upon God. And so he offered a solution to Moses. Now, the interesting thing to me is, is the qualifications that they required of the men. First of all, men that fear God, men of truth, and men who hate covetousness. Hey, if you can get men like that, you can allow them to do almost anything. Men who, first of all, have a real fear of God or a reverence of God. You know, there are some people, I'm sure, from their actions, they don't even reverence God. They don't even consider God at all. I think of some of these evangelists and all, like this Reverend Ike. There has to be no fear of God in that man. No fear of the judgment. The big hype that he puts on, you have to realize that the guy has no fear of God. Or else he could never do the things he's doing. And this isn't just true of him, but it's true of many, many men who are involved in ministries. If you really look at their lives, it's just one big hype and you have to realize, hey, these people, what they lack is a real fear of God to realize that someday they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for these things. Boy, I'll tell you, that, that is something that really weighs upon me. The Bible says, be not many masters, knowing you're going to receive the greater condemnation. So being a teacher of the word of God puts you in a very precarious position because someday you're going to have to answer to God for your teaching. That's why I do my best to just stick to the word of God. And when the word of God speaks on an issue, I'll speak on it. When the word of God is silent, I try to be silent. I don't want to say more than what the Word of God actually says. Because the teachers are going to be in greater condemnation. But there are some who have no fear of God because they're saying all kinds of wild, weird things that are even contrary to the Word of God. And so you just know they really don't fear God. They don't have the fear of judgment in their hearts. Secondly, they were men of truth. And thirdly, hating covetousness. Men who had really no ambitions for themselves. Hating covetousness. And these were the men who were chosen. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall judge, so it is easier for you, and they shall bear the burden with you. And if you shall do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all of these people shall also go to their place in peace. So uh, God commands you to do it. And so Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did as he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers over the thousands, rulers over the hundreds, fifties, and over the tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought to Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. And so, evidently, Moses' wife and children stayed with him. At this point, his father returned home. Father-in-law.